Um, good to see everybody once again this morning. Um, it looks like everybody's happy and doing well and encouraged, so that's good to see. I wanted to give everybody an update on our Bible Bowl that took place this past Wednesday. We um, had a super fantastic time. It was a ton of fun. In third place, we had the Sister Acts that came through. In third place. In second place was the Crazy Eight. Who's the Crazy Eight? Okay, that's another campus group, all right. And then in first place, we had the Hickory Crew. He won and uh, won by a good bit, and it was actually their second year in a row winning the Bible Bowl. So they stand undefeated so far. So everyone gets a chance. We're actually in, in 2019. We're going through the Gospel of John, so you can start gearing up now for next December to try to take out the Hickory Crew. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 24. And we're going to continue in our journey through the book of Acts. Um, I think it's been a really great study that we've been able to have. Um, Paul here, he's been um, summoned by the Holy Spirit. He is returning to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He goes to the temple to join in some purification rites um, to basically take away the excuses of some of the Jews that were there. Um, While he's there, he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, and a riot begins to erupt. As Paul is um, being rescued by the Roman soldiers, he asks to speak to the crowd. Um, He does that, and once he's done speaking, another riot erupts. There's literally like back-to-back riots going on in his life. Each time he's rescued by this particular Roman commander, whom I think is a really interesting person, if you just do a study just on him, because if I were him, I'd feel really frustrated because it seems like he's doing everything that he can to figure out and understand why is this man causing so much trouble, but he never quite seems to get to the bottom of it, but he keeps trying. Paul then goes and speaks before the Sanhedrin. We talked about that last week, and Paul makes a statement in the Sanhedrin about the resurrection, and this statement divides the Sanhedrin and causes yet another mini riot. There's less people there, but they were arguing quite viciously. Uh, That evening, he's visited by none other than Jesus himself. As Paul has gone through all of these different trials in his life and uh, riots and uh, being locked up in the barracks, Jesus comes to him in that moment of weakness, that moment of being down. It was at night, probably discouragement. And tells Paul to take courage. And that's what we were encouraged by last week. We're going to skip part of Acts chapter 23 where there's a a plot to kill Paul. And miraculously, Paul's nephew finds out about this plot. Like, I didn't even know Paul had a nephew, right? You read and you're like, whoa, like, where are you coming from? But somehow he finds out about a plot. Forty guys had said that they were going to not eat or drink until they killed Paul. Paul's nephew found out about it, told the commander about it, and Paul once again was rescued. I assume all those guys died because Paul was never killed by them anyway. The Bible doesn't say what happened to them, but anyway, maybe they broke that vow. Anyway, uh, Paul is then transferred to Caesarea because his, his life is in danger. 
He's transferred to another city, and the commander sends a letter explaining why he's sending Paul. And so Paul is clearly having a hard time because of his faith in Jesus, and he is on trial because of the resurrection. And we have to stand trial every day for the gospel, whether that's through people accusing us or through our own thoughts or whether it's Satan himself that's accusing us. We have to stand trial and and defend why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. Because I don't know if you're like me, I, I, I wrestle, I struggle. There's moments of doubt. Again, I came from an atheistic background. There's sometimes, not all the time, not many times, but a few times when I ask myself, are you really real, God? That's just me. You might have your own struggles, okay? And it's in those times that we have to stand on truth. And we have to stand on the truth of the resurrection. So please pray with me. We'll get into our uh, reading this morning in Acts chapter 24. A great and heavenly, awesome, almighty, all-powerful God, there's no one like you. There's no one who loves like you. No one who has power and strength like you. No one who is as wise as you are. And no one who loves us in the way that you do. Our parents our children, our relatives and friends, none of them combined love us in the way that you love us. And so, Father, we are endeared to you forever. We're eternally motivated and inspired by you forever simply because of your love. How can we turn our backs on it? How can we walk away from it? How can we reject an incredible love like yours? God, we pray that this morning as we gather together that we would be encouraged by each other's love for one another, that we would be inspired by your word as it's read and as it's talked about or expanded upon. And Father, we pray that we too would leave here with a conviction this afternoon to stand on the truth of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. And so the title of the lesson this morning is On Trial for the Resurrection. On trial for the resurrection. Read with me here in Acts chapter, let's see. Uh, Let's see here, sorry. I'm just going to start in Acts 23, beginning verse 31. It says, so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you any further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. 
By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And so the first point this morning is simply a wicked prosecution. A wicked prosecution. Here Paul is, is again, standing on trial. This is a more formal trial this time. The, the first one before the Sanhedrin was more informal. The commander convened that court. The commander didn't really have any legal authority necessarily to, to cause or to create a judgment. But now they're before the governor himself. And he does have the ability and the authority to rule in accordance with Roman law, Paul's fate. And so Ananias, who is the high priest, the same high priest in Acts 23 that Paul insulted and got smacked across the mouth because of, the same high priest comes up to Caesarea with a crew of people, including a lawyer named Tertullus, who was there. Uh, They hired this lawyer because he had to now um, present the case in, in Roman form. Present the case in a way that the Roman government would accept, would understand, and would be able to then litigate from. He also came with some of the elders from Jerusalem. I assume that these guys were part of the Sanhedrin. I also assume that part of the, most of these guys were also Sadducees because it was the Sadducees that were against Paul because of their belief against the resurrection. And so these guys come from Caesarea and they, they want to get a conviction Um, Either way, either one through the the Roman legal system, which is two of the charges they made, or through the Jewish legal system, which was the last charge that they made about Paul desecrating the temple. And Tertullus begins with all of his flowery praise for Felix and you're such an awesome guy and, you know, you've done so many good things for our country and we've had so much peace because of you and you're just so amazing But it couldn't have been farther from the truth. The governor, Felix, was one of the worst guys out there. He was born a slave, but he was exalted to the role of governor because his brother was a friend of the emperor. And Felix was known as being cruel and wicked. He'd had many people killed. And there was a a quote about him that said something like he, he had the position of a king but had the mind of a slave. And so Tertullus was totally just, well, there's kind of a bad term, term for what he was doing. He was, um, he was sucking up. Maybe that's a, good, a better term. Later in life, uh, Felix would be removed from his post because of outrage from the Jews. They just simply didn't like him. After he was removed from his post, uh, Felix then went and drowned himself in a lake committed suicide. So let's look at these charges that the lawyer makes against Paul. Charge number one. He says that he was a troublemaker and that he was stirring up riots. And so Tertullus wanted to charge Paul and accuse him of causing dissension and threatening the unity of the Roman Empire. That was a big thing that was worthy of death because the Romans were very, very heavy-handed, and they wanted everything to run the way that they wanted it to run. And if anyone was found guilty of stirring that up or or, or disrupting that unity, they were going to be in big trouble. The second charge was that Paul was a leader of the Nazarene sect. And they phrased it this way because they wanted to show that Paul, or try to show that Paul was a part of a group other than Judaism. 
Christianity was birthed from Judaism, and obviously Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. But they wanted to show that Paul was a part of a group that was other than Judaism, because Judaism was protected by Roman law, and other groups were not. And so they thought that they could get him in that way, basically calling him a cult leader. Charge number three was the attempted desecration of the temple. Again, this was the Jewish charge, so that if the first two charges didn't stick, they could at least get him on this one. And then Felix would kick the case out of the Roman court into the Jewish court. They would be able to try him there and then ultimately kill him, or at least that was the attempt. They also had some elders there. I call them the Amen Choir because they were just said they're saying Amen to everything that was being said, and they were just piling on the the abuse and the false charges. Now this Tertullus, he felt that his case would was airtight. I mean, look what he says in verse eight. He says, "By examining him, you yourself will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him." And so it makes you. Um, wonder what motivated this attorney to take the case. Normally, attorneys take cases because they feel like they can win, right? And because if they have a good track record, that means they're going to get more cases and they'll be able to handle larger and, and greater and more prominent cases. And so they want to take cases where they feel like I can win this case. And normally, they will begin by asking about evidence or asking about some kind of facts. And they'll make a decision like, hmm, it seems like you've got pretty good evidence for your case. Yes, I'll take it because I think that I can win. Tertullus had no evidence for any charge that he brought against Paul. No evidence. Yet he still took the case. So again, it makes you wonder, why did he take it? I think that it was because of the money. I think the high priest offered him a lot of money and he just said, well, I'll just go on and take the case and I'll make out like a bandit. This was wicked prosecution. And this is exactly what Satan does. He lies to accuse us. Everything that Tertullus said was a lie. A troublemaker stirring up riots. Paul didn't stir up riots. Yeah, there were a lot of riots that happened because of Paul, but Paul was not stirring up those riots. It was the Jews that were always stirring up the riots a leader of a Nazarene sect. Of course, yes, and he's going to stand for his faith in Jesus Christ in just a moment, but was he a part of a separate sect from Judaism? No, he believed in the same God, the same laws, the same commands as the Jews believed in. False charge, an attempted temple desecration. Again, no evidence and a false charge. You know, Satan lies to accuse us. Satan doesn't have anything against us, so he just starts manufacturing lies. I mean, like, what else does he have at this point besides just speaking falsehoods into our minds? You're so narrow-minded. You're so unloving. You're so insensitive to people's needs and to the world around you. What are you doing for other people? You're not smart enough. Look how long it took for you to graduate from college, right? You don't dress nice enough. I'm having my own wardrobe malfunction up here this morning, trying to keep my, sorry, my pants tucked in, my shirt tucked in my pants here. How can God use you? Can God really use you for anything good or anything great? You don't measure up. 
You're always falling short. You're a horrible parent. Look at what you said to your kid. Look how sad their faces are. You're a horrible parent. Nobody really likes you anyway. That's why nobody calls you. That's why nobody texts you. That's why nobody friends you on Facebook. Nobody likes you. These are the things that Satan tells us. These are the things, I mean, these are like straight out of my own mind, okay? These are the things that he tells me. And they're lies. Jesus said that he's a liar and that he's the father of lies. But just like Tertullus, lies are all that he has. It's the only way he can begin to make any kind of progress in taking us away from the hand and the love of God. It's by lying. And lies unravel when they're held up to the truth. And that's what we see here in the next point. A righteous defense. A righteous defense. Beginning in verse 10, it says, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So, a righteous defense. Paul's um, uh, response to Tertullus was a little bit different. No buttering up of Governor Felix. He simply states that I know that you've been around for a long time and you can verify these facts if you so choose to do so. All Paul had to do at this point was tell the truth. You know, sometimes when you lie, you got to remember your lie, right? And then someone asks you about it, you're like, what did I say again? And you kind of got to go through the, the song and the dance and everything and then people catch you. I thought you said this. I thought you said Oh, yeah, but but what really had happened was, and then you got to make another lie to cover up. No, Paul didn't have to do that. All he had to do was tell the truth. Very plain, very simple. To the charge of dissension, Paul basically says, look, I just got in the country 12 days ago. Five of them, I've been locked up dealing with you guys. So literally, I only had seven days. How much time did I have to stir up any kind of dissension? I was just... Minding my own business is what Paul says. 
I wasn't arguing with anyone. I wasn't stirring up trouble. But the burden of proof is on them that I was stirring up trouble or causing dissension. To the cult leader charge, Tertullus accuses Paul of being this, again, ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Paul doesn't deny that he's a follower of the way. He refuses to say that the way is separate from Judaism. He says very clearly in chapter 24, verse 14, However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. He believes everything written in the law and the prophets. His faith does not deny or denounce the Old Testament scriptures. Instead, again, his faith is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And the distance between Paul and his accusers in terms of their faith is not as far and as separate as his accusers would make it out to be. They're actually a lot closer than they were trying to portray. And it's a hope that is... I'm sorry, Paul basically says he has a hope in God just like they do. And it's a hope that's based upon the certainty of the resurrection. A hope that's based upon the certainty of both the righteous and the wicked rising from the dead one day. Now last week we talked about how Paul was able to keep a a clear conscience before God. We talked about him having his faith in Jesus, his sins being washed away, him walking in the light, him proclaiming the whole will of God. And through these things, that's how he was able to keep a clear conscience Here, it's the same kind of a theme about the resurrection and a clear conscience. But now we see that he's talking about why he kept a clear conscience before God. Again, verse 15. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He kept a clear conscience. Because his eye was constantly on the resurrection. He knew what was to come. And so he lived his life in a way that prepared him for what was to come. It was because of a resurrection that Paul strove to keep his clear conscience. He knew that both the righteous and the wicked would be resurrected. And he wanted to be ready for it. He wanted to be prepared for it. And he wanted to be ready to enter that day with nothing on his heart. He wanted to be free and clear. He wanted to be unencumbered. He didn't want anything weighing him down. He didn't want anything burdening him. Now the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And of course, we believe in the resurrection. Amen? We better believe in the resurrection. Because there has to be a resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 really quick. And Paul writes about the importance and the criticalness of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, Paul says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were believers in the church in Corinth that were saying there was no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is saying, how can you say that? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. I.e., you might as well go home and have lunch right now. More than that, 
We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, meaning those who have died. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's true. If there's no resurrection, what are we doing? Why are we sacrificing? Why are we living the way that we live? Why are we choosing to turn the other cheek? Love our neighbors, ourselves. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute. I mean, that's like craziness without the resurrection. But because of the resurrection, it makes everything make sense. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, and lies. That wasn't in there, I just put that in. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so this is what Paul was on trial for. It was the gospel message. It was the resurrection. It was the simple truth that Jesus had died, that he had been buried, and that he had risen again on the third day. And because of that, we know that when we die, God will raise each of us as well. And Paul's righteous defense is good news for us. He believed in the same resurrection that we do. The resurrection that gives courage to the cowardly and hope to the unsaved and the saved. It's this resurrection that we don't deserve and that we don't fuel, we don't power, we don't cause this resurrection. But it's this resurrection that gives us motivation to keep a clear conscience before God and man. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? I believe you do. If so, is your conscience clear? Are you ready for the resurrection to come? If not, get ready. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away and your conscience cleared in preparation for the resurrection to come. Third point. No, 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 not third point. Third charge, sorry. I still got a little bit to go on the second point here. (laughs) What did Paul say to the charge of him desecrating the temple? Uh, Verse 17, he says, After an absence of several, several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. He's exposing and he's talking about his motives for why he came. I didn't come to desecrate the temple. I came to be consecrated within the temple. I came to bring gifts to the poor to present offerings because of a vow. I was ceremonially clean, not unclean. There was no crowd, no disturbance when I went in. And then he says, but to those who have charges against me, they should be here to testify to what they saw. 
Because they didn't see anything. That's why there's no witnesses here. And what kind of top-notch lawyer travels miles and miles for a case and doesn't bring any witnesses? Like, no witnesses. You're making all these charges. You want this man to die, and you can't even say, well, here's some witnesses that saw what I'm talking about. Craziness. It's ridiculous. But it was because there were no witnesses to bring. That's why he didn't bring any. Paul did not attempt to desecrate the temple. And Trophimus the Ephesian, who they said was with him in the temple, wasn't even there. The only crime that Paul could be accused of was for shouting in the Sanhedrin, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. That was his only crime, if you want to call it a crime, and he admitted to that crime. Yes, I said that, and I'm saying it again. I know that I said it the first time in front of Ananias, and he got really ticked off about it, but I'm going to say it again in his presence, that I believe in the resurrection. Paul's only defense was the truth. What can we learn from this? When we're accused with lies... Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. The truth wins every time. The truth unravels the lies that Satan puts out there. When he says that you're dead, you tell him, I'm alive in Christ. And Ephesians 2 says that. When he says, you know what? You're just the same old you. You haven't changed. Tell him, no, I'm a new creation. I am the righteousness of God. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that. When he says, you know what? I'm way more powerful than you. And I'm way more powerful than your God. Say, well, you know what? Greater is he who is in me than he who is in this world. And it says that in 1 John chapter 4. When he says, you know what? God doesn't really love you. Look at all the pain you're going through. You got a flat tire. You lost your job. Tell him, well, I'm greatly loved by God. And Romans 8 says that. You know what? You're so weak. You're so powerless. You've been fighting with the same old sin for the last 15 years. Why don't you just quit? You tell him, well, you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Philippians chapter 4 says that. When he says, you're ugly, when he says, well, I don't know if Satan tells you that, he tells me that. You tell him, I'm God's workmanship. You tell him, I'm more than a conqueror. Ephesians 2, Romans 8. Speak the truth. And when we're persecuted, let the simple gospel of Jesus be our defense. There is now no condemnation for him or her who is in Christ Jesus. He died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Now the third point, a convenient judgment. Back in Acts chapter 24, verse 22, after Paul gives his defense, it says, Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid 
and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. A convenient judgment. Felix delays his judgment until Lysias the commander comes, which I I guess Lysias the commander never came because Paul was left in prison for two years. But Felix, during that time, uses Paul as kind of a, a chess piece. He uses him as leverage, one, to appease the Jews, but two, to try to get some money out of Paul. And all the while, he never made a ruling. And the problem wasn't that he needed more information or that he didn't understand the case or he didn't understand Jewish law or Jewish traditions or Jewish customs. He knew Paul was innocent, but he didn't want to frustrate the Jewish leadership by giving that ruling of innocence. He wanted to please the Jews so that he could win the next election. And so he keeps Paul in prison to pacify them. And he speaks to him regularly to try to get this money out of him. Instead of having conviction, Felix did what was convenient instead. And part of the reason why he knew about Judaism was his young wife, Drusilla, who came in with him after that fifth day. She was a hot mess. Now, she was originally given in marriage to a king in Syria when she was about 14 years old. Uh, But Felix saw her, and and according to some writing in antiquity, she was, someone said, I'm not saying she was, but someone said she was the most beautiful woman on earth at the time. Someone said that, okay? Felix saw her, and he courted her while she was married to the Syrian king and promised to make her happy, promised to make her life full of gladness. And so she left her husband and went to be with Felix. And this happened all before she was 20. She came from a notoriously murderous bloodline. She was one of the three daughters of Herod Agrippa I. Her father was uh, King Herod, and he was the one who put James the Apostle to death by the sword in Acts chapter 12. Her great uncle was Herod Antipas. He was the one who cut off the head of John the Baptist. And her great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one who killed all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two. And so they made a great tag team, didn't they? But nature tends to follow the path of least resistance, doesn't it? Water does that. Electricity does that. When you plot in a destination through Google Maps, even Google Maps will take you along the path of least resistance. But... Human beings also do that. We do what's convenient. We do what our flesh wants to do. And bottom line, just admit it, we're lazy. We don't like to work, or at least we don't like to work hard. We'd rather relax than struggle. We'd rather avoid conflict than resolve it. We'd rather live by convenience rather than conviction, just like Felix. And that's what's happening with Felix. He keeps Paul around. Whoops, I slipped. Sorry. I apologize. I like hit the wrong thing on my tablet here. If, if I don't have my script, I'm, I'm like no good. 
I, I like, tell me what to say. Because then I don't know what to say. I, I actually get petrified speaking before people. Anyway, Felix uh, can only take so much before he uh, gets fearful and he takes this path of least resistance himself. He, as Paul preaches about faith in Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment, Felix comes under, I believe, the Holy Spirit is convicting him at that point because in John it says that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does, convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Felix says, that's enough for now. You can go. When I'm ready, I'll call you back. And it's amazing that for those two years, Paul didn't seem to be concerned about his own freedom. He was concerned about Felix and Drusilla's freedom every time he spoke to them. They were not living righteous, self-controlled lives, and so that's what Paul preached about. They were not preparing for their judgment, so that's what Paul preached about. They were just living lives of convenience and following the path of least resistance. I think as we come together this afternoon, we have to ask ourselves, are we living righteous, self-controlled lives with our eyes on the resurrection and the judgment? Or are we taking the path of least resistance and doing simply what's convenient? Are we still okay with being challenged and stretched in our faith like Paul was trying to do with Felix and Drusilla? Are we still okay in growing in areas of, of weakness? I appreciate um, Didi this morning in the welcome because he talked about not being a great encourager. And as, as we all took the spiritual surveys, my, my uh, spiritual non-gift, I guess, or spiritual not superpower but weakness, the one that I scored the least, I mean like the bottom of the bottom, was encouragement. Encouragement. And what do you think is the thing that I've been challenged on a lot in my life? Encouraging. Now, is that a bad thing? No. It's a good thing. I need to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I need to be called higher. I need my life, my sin, my weaknesses, my faults, my flaws to be exposed so that I can rely on God. So that I can draw on his strength. If I'm always and only looking at where I'm strong, I don't look at God. I don't feel like I need God. I think I'm good. And so I I guess what I'm trying to say is I follow the path of least resistance. And so we have to consider this, I believe, for our own lives. We don't like feeling bad about ourselves. And I get it. I don't like feeling bad about myself. And I don't think that we should try to make others feel bad about themselves. But Jesus did say to enter through the narrow gate. The path to heaven is not the path of least resistance and convenience. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the Via Dolorosa. It's a path of pain. And it's the exposure of our areas of weakness that causes us to be strong and to rely on God's grace. It helps us to see God's grace in our lives. Because when we're weak, then we're strong. And this is what Felix did not like. 
He did not like your, Paul, you're preaching to me about righteousness, self-control, the judgment. You're convicting me. You're making me afraid because I know I'm not living that way. You're exposing me and I don't like it. So go away. And I'll call you when I'm ready. Instead of humbling himself and trusting in Jesus for his righteousness, Felix chose convenience instead. Church, let's live by conviction instead of convenience. Here's what I'd like for us to think about. What's one area in your life that you're living by convenience instead of conviction in? One area. It might be sleeping in when you could be spending some time with the Lord in the morning. It might be avoiding sharing your faith with someone instead of having conviction to talk about Jesus. It might be delaying or postponing your decision to repent and follow Jesus. Whatever it is, pick one. And this week, let's lean on God to give us strength and to help us do what's right instead of doing what's easy. Amen? And as much as they tried to make it about other things, Paul was on trial for the resurrection. And in a sense, so are we. Because our faith in Jesus and hope in the resurrection, we're charged by a wicked prosecution every day. Our enemy, the evil one, is always working to accuse and condemn us because of Jesus. But it's on the gospel that we take our stand. And it's through the gospel that we make our own righteous defense. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we've been acquitted and have the hope of a future resurrection. We entrust ourselves not to a corrupt governor named Felix, but to him who judges justly. God. He doesn't make convenient judgments. He lives by conviction, no matter how inconvenient. And we've been set free because he took out the punishment for our sin on his son, Jesus Christ. And we're blessed because of that. Amen? Amen. Amen.